0: Good evening, and welcome to a very smart panel of men, (laughs) Uh, well-dressed, and hmm? I've just said that. that. Um, uh, I'll start again. Welcome to this evening's event. Uh, uh, Tonight marks the London launch of a report on the future of climate governance from a group called Global Governance 2020. Global Governance 2020 is a program organized by the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin, and it's rather unusual because it brings together young academics and young professionals from China, the U.S., and the EU to discuss the future of common global problems, a very nice idea. The report has been presented so far in Washington and Berlin and will be presented in Beijing in the fall, and thus represents part of a global conversation on a critical global issue, which I hope the audience, you, will join in on. The report is available online in two places, at www.gg2020.net, or on the Global Policy Institute, that's an LSE journal, in case you don't know Global Policy and you want to visit this particular document, you should go to Journal, one word, .com, and the journal has been described by one member of the panel, I won't uh, name him, but he's somewhere in the middle wearing glasses. As such a sexy website, you ought to have to register somewhere you're over 20 to proceed. Oh, 18 to proceed. That's to say it's a slick website uh, on serious issues. First up this evening are the Global Governance 2020 (coughs) fellows who will present the report. Thomas Hale, um, somewhere, put your hand up, Thomas, yeah, so people know. PhD candidate at Princeton and a visiting fellow here at LSE Global Governance. Andre Lieber, a Research Fellow in the Parliamentary Office of the German Federal Minister of Environment, Nature Conservation and Nuclear uh, Safety. Have you put your hand up so we know who you are? Very good. Scott Moore, currently pursuing a graduate studies in Geography and Environment at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. That's the three who will present the report. I don't know how they're all going to manage to present it, but they're all going to do it in 15 minutes, so it should be punchy and clear. Uh, And then that will give our respondents, our rather eminent respondents, something to get their teeth into. Um, First up will be Robert Faulkner, a senior lecturer in international relations here at the LSE. Then um, uh, the very distinguished Anthony Giddens, member of the House of Lords, former director, of course, of the LSE, author of dozens of books, and most recently, The Politics of Climate Change. And last but not least, Michael Jacobs here is visiting Professor at the Grantham Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. He was earlier Special Advisor to the British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, with the responsibility for energy, climate change and environmental policy. So first up will be those presenting the report, 15 minutes, then the respondents will have about 10 minutes each or so to respond. Um, If there's something that's hanging in the air when they've all finished, I'll ask the panelists, the paper proposes to comment on it before we open it up to you, the audience. I hope that's clear enough for all of speakers to introduce. It's three plus three, basically. And let's have the first three on the report. Thank you.
1: Tonight we're going to suggest we need to change the way that we think, talk, and act about climate change, away from a make-or-break global treaty and towards what we call a UN-plus approach. Now this means turning away from a universal treaty uh, between countries to what we call the world's climate entrepreneurs, the national and subnational governments, communities, NGOs, businesses, and even individuals who are achieving meaningful greenhouse gas emissions reductions even in the absence of a global treaty. But we don't simply mean addressing uh, the, or accepting rather, uh, the business as usual approach or endorsing the status quo. Far from it. Instead, we seek new ways to support, catalyze, and coordinate these climate entrepreneurs. Uh, And for this, we imagine a reform of global governance to strengthen this patchwork approach to achieve multiplier effects in greenhouse gas emissions reductions. We believe, in short, there needs to be a recognition of common but differentiated responsibilities uh, both within countries as well as between them. In the absence of a universal treaty, we believe this approach offers the most pragmatic and also the most feasible way to move ahead. So good evening to you all. Uh, Thank you, first of all, to the Ralph Miliband Program and to LSE Global Governance uh, for hosting us tonight. We're very happy to be here. I'm Scott Moore, as uh, we were already introduced, uh, my colleagues Tom Hale and Andre Lieber. Uh, But more important than who we are uh, are our colleagues who are not here uh, because tonight because we represent, or rather service representatives, of a working group that was very intentionally uh, constructed to convene diverse perspectives from the European Union, China, and the United States as well as from government, academia, and civil society. Um, and though you wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, guess it from uh, our remarkably similar tastes in both uh, suit style and ties uh, this, uh, we, we didn't plan that I swear, um, we had this diversity of perspective deeply informed Uh, the ideas we want to talk to you a little bit about tonight. So our mandate from the beginning was to imagine uh, some different possible scenarios for the future of climate governance and then given those different possible scenarios or trajectories uh, to develop recommendations for how uh, more preferable outcomes can be be favored over others. Uh, And the way that we went about this was to use uh, a methodology called scenario planning which is used by Uh, Companies, governments, other entities that are uh, interested in and do a lot of work with anticipating uh, various ways in which a particular issue could play out. Uh, in the future. Uh, And this methodology consists of a number of steps. First of all uh, we tried to envision all the different factors uh, that might weigh on the global governance of climate change and our time horizon was uh, 2020, uh, hence the name of our our program uh, that you see up there on the slides. We were trying to think of that as our time horizon and think about all the factors that might influence climate governance out to that date. We thought a lot about uh, things like media coverage, uh, whether or not there could be climate linked, uh, major natural disasters, various macro political economic trends, uh, all of those sorts of things, just sort of uh, a real brainstorm of all potential relevant factors. And from that, we distill the number of key driving mechanisms, which in turn led us to develop a couple of scenarios, which Tom will talk about in more detail. And those scenarios are really meant to sort of form the bounds of probability uh, for how we see uh, the global governance of climate change playing out than to 2020. And then from that, in our scenarios, we were able to identify uh, some turning points, or or sort of key uh, uh, junctures at which those factors interact in a particular way to sort of shoot us off on one of the trajectories versus another one. Uh, And then from that, we were able to to come up with some recommendations to, again, preference uh, the outcomes that we think um, are indeed preferable. Important to, to quickly note, though, that this uh, methodology wasn't sort of a, a hard and fast constraint on our, uh, uh, the approach that, that we took. Uh, it wasn't sort of, we didn't envision it so much as a sort of algorithm in which, given specific inputs, uh, this, this process sort of spits out a, a correct answer. We rather found that it was a very helpful way to kind of structure our discussion uh, and to, uh, in particular, leverage the, the perspectives that we had within our group. So uh, keep that in mind as we, we go through our presentation. Uh, Last thing I want to say is that we convened right after Copenhagen, uh, the Copenhagen Climate Conference in December 2009. We convened January 2010. From the very outset, we were uh, deeply impressed by the need to uh, shift the way that we, or rather expand I should say, uh, the way that we uh, both think about climate change and certainly uh, how we act um, on uh, emissions uh, mitigation. Um, and though our thinking has evolved since then, uh, our core insight we think remains relevant uh, that we really need to to broaden the discourse uh, and engage uh, many different uh, actors. So with that, I will turn it over to uh, my colleagues. And first, uh, Tom, to go into more detail
2: about the scenarios. So in tri- striving to think innovatively about climate change, we came up with three different scenarios that we think map the different actors, factors, turning points, and trends that will shape climate governance over the next decade. And our first scenario can be thought of as the institutional business as usual plan. We call it Kyoto 2.0. In this vision, we imagine a world of increasing consensus around the necessity of deep and binding emissions reductions that um, are encoded in a series of global treaties. This has been going on for 20 years, since the 1992 Rio Earth Summit, and the most uh, concrete tangible result to date has been the the Kyoto Protocol, which we all know. The Kyoto Protocol, of course, was supposed to be a first step to another series of treaties that would gradually ratchet up the the commitments that countries agree um, to reduce their own emissions. For this scenario to proceed in the next decade, we think a number of factors would have to fall into place. For example, you can imagine different kinds of dramatic weather events changing the way people see climate change and highlighting the costs in the public eye. You could imagine new kinds of technological breakthroughs allowing industry to innovate around new kinds of low carbon development models, or you might imagine that different governments recognize the security risks that migrations or resource scarcities brought on by climatic change would uh, would create now if you look at the headlines these days you don 't see climate change rising to this level of high politics that would be needed we think for this kind of scenario to evolve instead we see the Arab Spring, we see Libya, we see the disaster in Japan. We don't have, we think, the politics in place to um, to make the, the Kyoto 2.0 a reality. And the difficulty of this issue, the inherent difficulty of this issue, which Professor Giddens talks about so well in his new book, are, is part of that difficult process. So. The, the key to the, the Kyoto 2.0 vision, though, is not just this general set of problems, but actually a very specific set of actors, China and the United States. The G2, as you might call them, are really um, have it within their power, we think, to set off a cycle of virtuous ambition, begetting ambition, and moving toward a series of much more effective climate treaties. Um, if they move, the world would have to follow suit, we think. Unfortunately, you have to look no further than the domestic politics of the United States to see how deeply improbable that is in the coming years, at least soon enough to make a big difference. And so, um, for all those reasons, we think our second scenario, which we call stalemate, is in fact far more likely. This is a world of gridlock, a world where the inability for countries to agree to binding emissions cuts encoded in a legally binding treaty creates a cycle where... Acrimony increases, markets do not see any incentive to invest in clean technologies, Um, economic and security issues, other kinds of issues dominate the global agenda and there's no effective governance system emerging. The key point though that we want to emphasize here is that under a different kind of institutional approach, a third scenario is possible. This is a second window of opportunity. First window of opportunity could be dramatic action by China, the United States but that one seems to be closing. A second window of opportunity, however, exists for a different kind of institutional approach, what we call a patchwork scenario. In this vision, climate governance is envisioned as a series of um, a broad coalition of ambitious countries, ambitious sub-national governments, ambitious national governments, ambitious cities, ambitious regions, ambitious NGOs, ambitious companies, ambitious individuals, coming together and creating a kind of emergent system of climate governance, a patchwork of different kinds of actors taking actions um, outside of the legally binding Kyoto 2.0 kind of scenario. Now this is already happening. We see it all around us. Probably many of you in this room can imagine different kinds of examples. Um, different national governments or subnational governments like the EU, or regional organizations like the EU, the state of California, other actors like this have taken steps to limit their carbon emissions. Sometimes they link them together. The EU and, and, and California are discussing how to link their carbon markets together to create a larger carbon market that would be more efficient. The C40 is a group of forty um, enormous cities around the world that are coming together to set their own kind of targets for for carbon reductions. Um, we see private companies getting into the act. The Carbon Disclosure Project, for example, is, an, is a way for investors to find out how much uh, carbon... Uh, the carbon footprint that different companies have and to pressure them through the transparency of this, release me- of this disclosure mechanism and the market pressures it, un- it unleashes, to pressure them to kind of uh, move in a more positive scenario. In China, which is often pilloried as the um, bad boy of global climate governance, Um, We see local regional governments taking extremely ambitious measures to to invest in clean technology and to lower their their carbon footprint. So there's a lot of hope. The key message, though, is that this kind of bottom-up emergent system of patchwork governance is not enough. It's not yet at the level of scale, level of ambition, where it's actually going to make a tangible difference um, on the climate. And so the key question, which my colleague Andre will not talk about, is how we can bring up Uh, that level of scale, how we can bring up the level of ambition, how we can make this patchwork scenario more than just business as usual, how we can make it an effective solution to global climate governance.
3: Well, thank you, Tom. I would like now to talk you through to some of the recommendations that we have discussed in our working group. Uh, Now, the first step, we think, is to move beyond this global deal mentality if policymakers and ngos uh, com- continue to focus all of their efforts and energy on these multilateral negotiations they will continue to be frustrated instead they should invest some time and energy in what we call the un plus approach now the good news is that there is a second window of opportunity but in order to seize this window of opportunity specific actors have to take certain specific steps And I would like to begin with those two countries that are most commonly seen as the biggest obstacles to a global deal, global treaty, China and the United States. Now, for China, they should actively support an entrepreneurial bottom-up approach, uh, encouraging emissions reductions by cities, regions, companies, organizations. As a matter of fact, China has a long history of uh, politics of local experimentation. Uh, Their economic, or its economic boom began by exactly this kind of experimentation, some regions moving quicker, moving ahead, and we believe that now it's time for the richer coastal regions of China to do the same with regards to climate change. So instead of the special economic zones, there's now talk about local carbon markets, uh, emission trading schemes, et cetera, et cetera. So all these um, commitments and initiatives should, of course, be implemented in partnership with international peer networks. and. As a matter of fact, this kind of cooperation does already exist. Uh, to name just one example, there is a commitment cooperation between Jiangsu province and the state of California. Now, these very up-to-date, very formal, representative, um, very diplomatic efforts have to, have to be stepped up. The United States mm-hmm. is, contrary to popular belief, um, to some extent a good example also for this bottom-up approach, and that this bottom-up approach can work. There's um, dozens of initiatives at state level and hundreds at city levels, and all these initiatives combine about 45 percent of total U.S. emissions. Now to put that into perspective, that's uh, equal to the total amount of Germany and Japan combined. The question now is, how do we get the remaining 55 percent on board? And the answer to that question is, we need or federal leadership is needed. Now, faced with the congressional deadlock that has already been mentioned, and also the fiscal situation in the U.S. right now, Uh, we think that the federal government should create, should help to create a baseline of expectation for states to address climate change, either by moral leadership, technology transfer, or other means. Now, having talked about this bottom-up approach, not all leadership comes from below or from the bottom-up. So for the EU, we do see a very powerful role in this UN-plus process in shaping what we call a coalition of the ambitious. Ambitious countries, um, companies, regions committed to aggressive emission reductions. How should the EU proceed? They should use both diplomatic as well as economic incentives as well as sanctions to promote participation by other countries, but also by non-state, sub-state actors or actors within uh, within countries. Uh, Just give you two two examples. The EU should or could proceed with minilateral uh, treaties with countries like Mexico or India. At the same time, the EU could look into the feasibility of uh, carbon border adjustment taxes. Gary Hofbauer called this the, the green space. The EU could integrate or further integrate its economic and trade policy with its climate policy. Um, at the same time, government action can only get us Uh, so far. So what about the role of business and civil society? We think that they should step up and should lead where governments can no longer lead. So the private sector can adopt voluntary emission targets at the firm sector and industry level. In our working group, we talked to experts from the shipping industry, from harbor associations, and there exists a whole lot of very innovative and effective regulations that could be studied. Civil society in turn has the power to turn the to change the discourse of how we talk about climate change. They have the power to change the discourse of the climate debate as a whole. They could turn away the attention from this global deal mentality more to, towards the smaller projects, working projects, but interlinked projects. So in a nutshell, the NGO community has the power to legitimize uh, governing schemes, not just at the national level, but uh, at like we said at organization, individual level and other levels as well. Finally, let's talk about the UN in this UN Plus uh, proposal. Uh, Having talked about all these initiatives, bottom-up approach, um, there's of course a need need for coherence, a need for link-in, for feed-in. And this is the role that the UNFCCC should and could play. To this end, it should expand its very state-centric and consensus-based approach Uh, and explicitly encourage a much wider variety of approaches. For example, under the Copenhagen Accord, countries can submit commitments called Nationally Appropriate Mitigation Actions, or NAMAs. Now, the same types of uh, methods could be expanded to include, again, companies, individuals, uh, or regions, RAMAs, LAMAs. There's many, many possibilities. The UN as a whole could play the role of a clearinghouse, uh, a hub for information sharing, and they could coordinate between the different initiatives, help in the definition, the codification and the, the record recording of these norms and standards under which all these initiatives operate. Now to conclude, uh, we think that it's time to change the way we think about climate change At this uh, at this time. The two key insights of our report are, number one, there exists a second window of opportunity. Now please keep in mind that our time frame was 2020. Number two, um, this opportunity we, to seize this opportunity, we have to change the way we deal with climate <coughs> change. And we propose what we call the UN plus approach. Now, to underline again, plus does not mean instead of the UN. It means complementary to the UN. And we are also aware of many initiatives uh, that are already ongoing along similar lines, called by different names and different titles. And with this, we would like to close. And we look forward to the comments, questions, suggestions uh, of the panel. Thank you very much.
4: So Robert, you're going to go first? Can I go first? OK, thank you. as I saw the, the lineup of the panel, as, as you mentioned, David, I, I was thinking I shouldn't have accepted the invitation to speak in. It. Um, it is an all-male, all-pale panel, and I think it's a, probably one of the most regressive panels we've organised at the LSE in, in recent years. Did that ever happen in your reign? Never, of course no, no, not. We were like
5: diversity, wouldn't we? So, yes. so
4: we will have to do better next time round, and I promise to. Uh, well, I can't personally, but um, I'll try. Not and do something all men
5: in ties we wouldn't have had. <laughs> you know. Terrible.
4: as it is. Nevertheless, I think while the panel may be aggressive, the report is quite progressive, and I welcome it uh, very much. And uh, I think it does a, a couple of good things in the debate on international climate change. First of all, it opens up whole debate about the international process, which is somewhat broken, and I think we desperately need new thinking in that area. So thank you for putting uh, the spotlight uh, uh, on, on those issues that are uh, desperately in need of uh, fixing. It's also good to see different scenarios being laid out, because we, in, in that whole debate about how can we create a global climate regime, we don't often think about alternatives, and in that sense it, it opens up a new way of thinking about this. It's also good that you attach the likely outcomes in terms of temperature rises to each of those scenarios. But that's where it gets a little bit scary, because if you look carefully, the likely scenario you described, the patchwork scenario, still leaves us with a temperature rise over the current century of between 2 and 5 degrees Celsius. So not much hope there one might say if That is the only uh, path forward. But still, it's important to focus on that, and we need to know where we are going to end up in. Um, Still, I would argue that the report helps us in framing debate in a better way. Let me explain what I mean by that. The usual way of framing debates on international climate policy, uh, the usual framing is caught in a binary logic. You either get the global deal, the top-down approach, we need an international agreement with all the countries included in it, binding, comprehensive, tough deal. Uh, It it needs to hurt now and it needs to hurt most of the the major emitters in order to make the progress that we need to make to cut down emissions. Or you get the alternative argument, which is, no, top-down doesn't work. We need to start at the bottom. We need to initiate uh, clever new uh, policy experiments. We need to promote technology from the bottom up. So a lot of the debate for the last 20 years has been caught in this binary system. It's one or the other, and if the first one the global deal doesn't work, then we're left with just the kind of decentralized bottom-up approach. That, I would argue, is is deeply unhelpful in terms of framing the political debate, and your report helps us to break away from that. The difficulty, however, is to make sense of that in-between space between the two options. The difficulty is to define exactly what is needed and what can be done in that in-between space, because let's be clear about this. The two scenarios you described, the Kyoto 2.0 option, in other words, a kind of a renewed global deal, or the bottom-up option, the kind of stalemate, where we simply delegate to the national level. Both of these options are really not working and are are not open to us. Look at what's happened on, on the formal negotiations. We've negotiated climate change in the pursuit of the holy grail of a global comprehensive treaty for over 20 years now. We started in the late 80s. We are now talking about replacing the Kyoto Protocol with a success agreement and broadening it out. And it's clear that in the foreseeable future, we're going to get either a universal agreement with all the countries joining in, but which will have no binding tough and comprehensive targets, or we will get an agreement which has those binding targets that we need but not with everyone on board that needs to be on board. And it's this fundamental trade-off that we cannot get around in the international diplomatic sphere. Uh, the US is unable to sign up to an agreement of that kind. China is unwilling to do so. And in any case, uh, either side waits, is waiting for the other one to make the first move. So we're stuck in a profound dilemma that we cannot get around for that reason that. Opportunity is not available for the foreseeable future. Likewise, the bottom-up alternative um, just isn't enough, it's not sufficient, and we shouldn't expect this to do the trick. It's interesting, by the way, to see who promotes bottom-up approaches. It's usually in the United States that you get powerful arguments made to that effect. They also have interesting allies. Saudi Arabian commentators favor bottom-up approaches. I wonder why. Uh, If you look at what's happened on that front, uh, if you look at the truly bottom-up efforts that are being advocated, namely technology development in the form of clean energy. If you look at what the biggest proponent of a bottom-up approach has done, namely the United States, then I think you get the full picture of why this isn't going to work. U.S. investment, federal investment, in clean energy research used to be quite strong and, and peaked in the sort of early 1980s shortly after the two oil shocks but has been in decline ever since the United States in the last decade spent about 1 billion US dollars per year less on clean energy research than it did in the 1990s federal funding but also private funding in the clean energy area has been declining in recent years. And interesting enough, if you need uh, one authority that clearly sees the future, U.S. hedge hedge funds, last year in December, at the time, ironically, of the Cancun summit, started to short sell uh, shares in clean energy firms as a clear sign that they didn't see this taking off in the United States. That's the one example of a country we have that believes in a bottom-up approach without an international agreement. So, clearly, in the absence of those two, we need something in between. What's the alternative? And here I broadly agree with the report, and and I think you've pointed in the right direction. It's clear that we need to um, explain to the world that multilateralism as a principle hasn't died in, in the climate process. The UN isn't completely broken. But I think there's a problem with calling it a UN plus approach, because there are just not many constituencies out there in the world that would accept a UN plus approach. That may be an issue of... Of uh, rhetoric, of, of uh, labelling it, but I think in, in, in broad essence we're talking about the same things. What we need to do is to build climate change in a long term process. This is not going to happen in, in a short term, uh, quick shot uh, approach. We're going to uh, have to see this as a process, much like trade policy, where we didn't set out to initiate free trade in one year, but where we built up a free trade regime over time. Whether we have the time or not is a different uh, question, and I'm not sure about that, but it's the only game that's left to us now. So we need to focus on what is achievable in the current climate, what can be done. We need to build up elements. uh, I call this in another context, a building blocks approach to climate governance. I think that's the only way to go. That means we need to retain the UN as a legitimate framework. Developing countries in particular will not be willing to uh, see this kind of mushrooming of climate governance without the UN helping to frame it but we need to be quite careful not to put too much emphasis on, on, insist, on the insistence that all efforts have to be kept under that umbrella there will be clubs there will be uh, forerunners there will be uh, I think you called it coalitions of the ambitious that sounds much better than coalition of the willing uh, to go ahead and, and on that front I think we need to be much more creative than we are in terms of thinking about the institutional architecture there's a lot to be done on the European front. The EU will have to set the level of ambition high, even though it cannot force it. You can't push a string. You have to pull, so you need to lead uh, from the front. It's going to be much tougher, though, in the future, because if the Americans are not following, the Chinese are doing their own thing, then European businesses just went by the argument that we will just out-compete them on the green clean energy front, and that's where I think a lot of the obstacles will be on the front. So, overall, and I'll conclude here, I think we've uh, seen in this report uh, a very clearly a strategy ahead, um, and I think I wait to see uh, further thoughts on how to make it work. Thank you. Tony. Tony. Uh,
5: well, good evening everybody, let me say what a pleasure it is to be here and a particular pleasure for me to be back at the LSE, um, I would like to join Robert in congratulating the authors of the report and uh, also the other range of institutions involved and I do hope it has a lot of influence. I'd like to start by reiterating that the risks posed by climate change, which sounds a kind of bland term, are very, very real. Climate change in my assessment is the most formidable problem that as collective humanity we face in the 21st century. I'd like to emphasize to the audience that the scientific evidence about the risks of climate change is very robust, very sophisticated, and comes from many different sources. The best monitoring organization in the world of uh, the changing climate is the National Atmospheric and Oceanic Administration of the United States. It uses some 10 core sets of indices, all of which show that global warming is happening, and all of which indicate that it's almost certain this is a result of human activity. Um, According to their data, which produced by satellites and many other sources of measurement, uh, 2010 ties with 2005 as the warmest year ever recorded. The the best uh, uh, place where CO2 in the atmosphere is measured, or the most sophisticated one, is the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. In April 2011, CO2 in the atmosphere stood at 393 parts per million. 2010 was the seventh year out of nine, the last nine, when it increased by more than two parts per million. Um, We know, and it's demonstrable in a laboratory, the effect of CO2 and greenhouse gases on the warming of the world's atmosphere. And we should remember, I think, that climate change is quite unlike any other global problem we face, even though it overlaps with all of them, because of its irrevocable nature. Global poverty is a bad thing, right? It certainly is. And it will be a bad thing in 2050 if we don't address it. Climate change is quite different because every year the greenhouse gases are going into the atmosphere. Once they're in the atmosphere, we know of no way of getting them out on the large scale. So we're doing something irrevocable to the world's climate. No other civilization in history could ever have been in this position because no other civilization could conceivably, conceivably have intervened into nature in the way in which we do on a daily, weekly, yearly basis. See, th- there is one statement I, I, I would qualify in the report where you say under scenario three, the most likely one, uh, a three to five degrees centigrade global warming by the end of the century um, is is the most likely outcome, and you say, with significant adaptation costs. Well, I mean, this is an entirely destructive scenario. If you have a 5 degree centigrade increase by the end of the century, the world will be in turmoil. It means something like a 9 or 10 degree increase in the Arctic regions, for example. So you're talking devastation, really, here, I think. So we live in a world where we must get a grip on the issue and we're a long, long way away from doing so. Um, I I certainly agree with the authors and I suppose that was the sort of theme of the book that I wrote that you referred to the patchwork governments as they call it driven in some part by bottom-up entrepreneurial activities is the most probable situation for the future but I entirely agree with Robert's qualifications of that position. You're certainly going to need the UN Certainly, we still have to push for strong agreements if we can get them. And it's certainly going to be the case that that we're going to be dependent on some states occupying vanguard position. Um, So far as I know, it's not discussed in the report, but I think uh, the influence of Brazil is pretty interesting. Brazil is emerging as a potential uh, leader in the field of trying to uh, regulate, control climate change. And uh, uh, it has actually secured the biggest reduction in greenhouse gases of any country Um, during uh, the recent period of the 2000s, between 2003 to 2009. It reduced its greenhouse gas emissions by 30%, most of that the result of of curbing deforestation. But as you probably know, Brazil has a very different uh, energy mix from any other um, emerging economy. Um, because it gets a very high proportion of its energy from renewables uh, if you accept that um, uh, biofuels uh, constitute renewable. Say, you can see some interesting actors, anyway, emerging on the world scene, and it's completely correct. It says the authors do that what the U.S. and China do is going to be crucial. The U.S. and China, between them, account for some 42% of total greenhouse gas emissions. We do know the Chinese leadership has changed its attitudes very significantly. We do know that the situation in the US on a federal level is absolutely dire, that there are many other things going on below that level, as the authors uh, quite rightly say. But to show, you know, how big the gap is between the reality of the risks and the track that we're on, if you look at the work of the Climate Exchange, which looks at some 60 countries around the world. Even the most advanced country in the world, Sweden, which only has 5 million people anyway, is not on track, according to their calculations, uh, to reduce or to be able to limit climate change to 2 degrees centigrade. Not a single country in the world, according to their analysis, is as yet on track to do that. We're a long way, even in the most advanced countries, from creating what you would call a, a low carbon economy. And around all of this, you know, there, there are certain uh, myths which I'd like to mention very quickly and then uh, finish. Um, one Robert has partly uh, referred to, although in a specific context, this is the myth that you can uh, reduce emissions by investment in clean energy. Of course, it could contribute to reduction of emissions, but it's perfectly possible to have a country which has a large proportion of its energy from renewables, in other words, low carbon sources, but has a steeply climbing emissions curve. Uh, Spain is an example of such a country in Europe. Spain has a higher proportion of renewables than Germany does, in fact, but had a steeply climbing emissions curve because of the dependence of its economy on construction, at least up until the period of the recession. Second, it's a myth that you can reduce emissions it's facto by energy efficiency. Uh, the most energy efficient country in the world is Japan, which began after the first uh, oil crisis. But it also has quite steeply climbing emissions curve because it's dependent on coal fired um, power production. It's also a myth. Thirdly, and it was something that I hoped for, but has become, I think, a receding influence that you can substitute for active climate uh, change policy an emphasis upon energy security. Um, Energy security is clearly a driving force of political policy and important in the United States. But if energy security is supplied by coal or indeed supplied by shale gas, which is becoming more and more common, especially in the United States, uh, these two things, especially coal, are lethal for uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not true, it's so facto that increasing energy security will uh, reduce overall emissions. So, to me, we need to do a lot of work on what a low carbon economy actually looks like. Of course, if you combine the first two, and particularly if you combine them with other <coughs> changes, you can develop such a model. I don't really think we have one at the moment, so I think there's a lot more work to do on that issue. In conclusion, I think the policy prescriptions offered at the end of the report are interesting and good. But as someone who's spent you the know, last three or four years working intensively on climate change, the main thing, I think, of our situation as I see it globally is that we're facing immense risks. Most people are largely indifferent for a range of reasons I won't discuss here to those risks or try to claim that they are not real there is therefore a massive gap between a world fraught with danger for me for many people sitting in this room as early as 2040 or 2050 and there's enormous distance between the track we're on now and the track we need to be on if we're going to limit uh, climate change and in the middle there are all these policies and initiatives but this gap to me is extremely disturbing thank you
6: thank you, you, want me? Um, thank you very much well I should try and be a little bit more optimistic than Tony um, partly because I'm a professional optimist um, I regard optimism um, Uh, Not in the way that it was uh, once described to me. Um, I was once uh, uh, an optimist, was defined to to me as a pessimist, not in full possession of the facts. Um, I think this is amusing but wrong, Um, and particularly rational optimism. Indeed, and the reason, uh, but the reason I say I'm a professional optimist is because uh, we are only going to act on this issue if people believe it's worth acting. Um, and believe they are only going to believe it's worth acting if they think that by acting we could change the situation. Um, as a more famous philosopher even than Tony Giddens uh, said, the point is not just to understand the world but to change it. And a belief that there is nothing that can be done, that we are headed um, inexorably towards disaster, uh, which I'm not saying Tony does, but many people uh, do, a sort of sense of fatalism, will be almost literally fatal. And it's therefore really important that uh, those people who care about climate change, who can see the world that, it, that Tony describes as uh, coming towards us, uh, do not feel that that world is inevitable and that we can't act on it. Um, and therefore, uh, my, uh, what I mean by saying I'm a professional optimist is uh, I think it's very important to see the positive trends um, and to see how they can be expanded and supported um, and how people can believe that the action that they can take, whether in their own uh, own lives as individuals or as citizens and as um, and as forms of pressure on those with power, both political and economic, uh, can be effective. And I think we have some evidence of that. Um, and uh, so I think it's really important that, although I agree with more or less everything that Tony said about uh, how dangerous the world is and how difficult w- it will be to act on it, that we take those uh, grounds, those uh, activities that are already occurring, and, uh, which do constitute grounds for optimism, and we build them into a political strategy for trying to change the world and not simply uh, accept what might look uh, as if it was inevitable. And in this respect, uh, I have to say, although I immensely enjoyed reading this report, and I think it it was obviously a very interesting process, and and I uh, I really welcome welcome it, I think there are uh, some mistakes, uh, if I may really be sort of uh, bold, in the the analysis. Um, And I'd just like to uh, sort of uh, pick some of those up as a a way of of starting a discussion uh, in the room about them. The first is that, of course, governance doesn't really matter. Um, And I hate to say this to esteemed colleagues from international relations departments, um, but what really matters is the total level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the trend rate of growth in those, um, uh, and our ability to act on them. And governance is uh, a description of the arrangements by which those things occur and are governed. But in the end, what really matters is the emissions and the mitigation efforts indeed the adaptation ones. And what I, uh, what I am not clear about is the relationship between different kinds of governance arrangements and the total mitigation results. We have Kyoto point 1.0, and it has achieved almost zero mitigation. So if the model is a global <coughs> comprehensive treaty or something approximating to that, but the total mitigation effort that it generates is very minimal, that's not worth having. In the meantime, what we had at Copenhagen was the almost complete breakdown of the Global Climate Comprehensive Treaty model and huge commitments made by national governments to reducing emissions. The Copenhagen process, the meeting itself, was a terrible failure. But in the run-up to it, and entirely as a result of the fact that that meeting was going to occur, China adopted a emissions reduction target, which is now codified in its new 12th five-year plan, which was far more ambitious than it had done before. Brazil, as uh, Tony mentioned, adopted a very, very ambitious uh, commitment. South Africa adopted an extremely ambitious one, India didn't. Um, but many other countries did, and the EU was also pushed towards its 20% and, and, uh, and still has 30% open, as a result of a push towards uh, a, a treaty, but not through the treaty. And so we need to ensure that when we're talking about governance, what we're really focused on is governance that supports mitigation or greater mitigation effort than you would get otherwise through bottom-up or national processes. And uh, that seems to me to be the real objective uh, here and, uh, 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 and what I would like to focus on. So the key question is, what are the governance arrangements that support national effort? The second mistake that I think uh, is made here, and I, maybe this is unfair to call them mistakes, and I'm sure the, panel, the, the, the members of the team will come back and say, no, we don't think that, which is, uh, which is fine. So maybe these are simply heuristics on my part. Um, uh, 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 but part part of I think uh, a mistaken analysis is that a treaty is something which is achieved in its own right separate from the national commitments which make it up this was the sort of ruling myth of the Kyoto and then the original Copenhagen project that you would get nation states to agree to a global set of commitments and then they would enact them and that in some sense the first thing that happened was the global treaty and then countries would adopt policy in a conformity with the global treaty. And to some extent that was how Kyoto was negotiated. Countries didn't took on commitments in Kyoto and didn't know how they were going to achieve them. So in a sense that was true of the first round. What happened at Copenhagen and in the run-up to it was it was, became very clear that the commitments that countries were being asked to make were so significant to the future, their future development paths and their economy that they were not prepared to make them until they had worked out whether or not they could do so. And frankly, I had quite a lot of sympathy uh, with, uh, with that position. That was very much China's position, which it was not prepared to take on commitments unless it knew that it could uh, achieve them. So I think we should be very careful about thinking of the global treaty as something which comes first and then nation state action comes afterwards in my view a global treaty will be the codification of commitments that countries have decided to make with an important extra ingredient which is the collective pressure that a collective process applies to national, uh, national processes that's what happened at Copenhagen the reason we have the national commitments that countries made in the run up to Copenhagen is because of the international pressure that that event forced on them It wouldn't have happened otherwise, and it certainly wouldn't have happened simultaneously, which is what happened. Complete coincidence if all these countries simultaneously made these commitments, given their different political cycles. So I think we need to understand the Global Treaty as a codification of national commitments, but with the pressure applied through an international process, which has the possibility, through peer pressure and through collective global uh, public opinion, to increase them. So the third myth or the third mistake, which I think is made here, is to see, consequent upon that, the global treaty as something which uh, is different from or separate from the patchwork approach. I think uh, a quite possible scenario is that you get the patchwork approach of of multilateral governance coming from different places, different groups of countries, different kinds of actors. And then that leads through the confidence in action which it generates to the possibility of a treaty. So I don't think we have three separate scenarios here. I think we have the possibility of moving down the patchwork approach, which I agree is the most likely thing to happen, which doesn't rule out then the possibility that you come back to the possibility of a treaty, depending upon the circumstances you would uh, get. So the fourth mistake that I think is made in this is to see that 2012 is in somehow a crucial decision point leading to a situation in 2020. There's a little diagram in the report which bifurcates the the paths of development in the year 2012 and effectively rules out the treaty at the point at which China and the U.S. in 2012 can't agree on on ambitious action and then leaves only open the two other uh, rather more depressing stalemate and patchwork, uh, uh, patchwork governance scenarios. I don't think 2012 is a crucial year for what happens in 2020. Think back the other way. 2012 to 2020 is eight years, go back to 2003. Between 2003 and now, the world has changed immensely. We've seen huge changes in the global economic and political power of different countries. We've had a financial crisis. We've had a complete change in our understanding of climate change, but also of food and other things. I don't think we can say that what happens next year will determine what happens in 2020, nor, indeed, do I think that's true of what happens in 2014, which is the other juncture point. I think the world is much more fluid than that and I don't think we can predict the next uh, eight years in that sense. So while I agree that I think the the patchwork approach is the most likely one, I don't think that rules out changes in political uh, relationships between countries uh, and others which might move us back into the scenario of a treaty. Why should we regard, coming back to my initial question, a treaty as important at all? um, I think for for, uh, three main reasons. One is that I don't think there's any doubt that countries will do more under collective pressure from one another than they will do on their own partly the coincidence of timing, that getting them to to focus on this issue at the same time and getting the same pressure seems to me to uh, uh, um, be uh, uh, very important, Um, uh, um, but also because of the free-riding problem, that there is a problem of individual action, this is a collective action problem, so some form of collectivism is necessary, and a treaty process, even if it doesn't end up in a treaty, as we found with Copenhagen, is very useful for that. Second, that the idea of binding... Uh, Of binding commitments, if we had them, is very useful to to commit countries beyond the the presence of individual governments. We're very lucky in this country that the change of government has not changed the climate commitments of the United Kingdom. On the contrary, this coalition has continued the climate commitments of the previous government. That doesn't happen, and it will not happen even in the US if if Obama loses the next election. And you can see the way in which a binding treaty uh, gives you a considerable more uh, more purchase on on a country's commitments than otherwise. However, Robert points out a very important thing, which is you may may find that you're trading bindingness with ambition that what countries are willing to be bound to is less than what they're willing to be not bound to because being bound to it is that much more more serious the third one is you need a set of common rules part of the problem we have in this current situation is you've got a whole different set of rules we don't even count greenhouse gases in the same way we've had tremendous problems counting greenhouse gases from land use and forestry it is a collective set of rules that will will, uh, help us to tackle uh, this problem the last point I'd make um, uh, on this is um, about what seems to me to be missing in Scenarios 2 and 3 in this task is put into Scenario 1, which is the sort of optimistic uh, scenario, but doesn't reappear in Scenarios 2 and 3, um, which is the role of public scientific evidence and public opinion. The reason we know the things that, uh, that, that uh, Tony says um, and the reason public opinion led us to the point where there are commitments in place, uh, such as they are now, um, is because of uh, the scientific work that's going on constantly to assess the extent to which we are affecting our climate and the impacts that that will have, and the public's reaction to them. And though that seems to me to be inevitably going to grow. I don't foresee a scenario in which the scientists tell us that actually it's all got much better than we thought it was. We know what is going to be in the fifth assessment report, which is going to come out in 2014. It's going to say that all the worst-case scenarios that were in the fourth assessment report look desperately optimistic in the light of new evidence. We're going to be faced in 2014 with another hugely authoritative, despite the fact that it will be picked over a lot more than the last one will be, hugely authoritative analysis from thousands of the world's scientists in a whole range of of atmospheric, um, uh, geographic, um, uh, environmental sciences, economic and social fields, which will show us that we are heading for disaster, and the media will pick this up, and the young people who will dominate the world's uh, world's populations at that point, as we've recently seen in Arab uh, Arab countries, will say this is not good enough. And I think that the one constant that I'm actually willing to bet on among lots of very Difficult uh, uh, um, uh, uh, uncertainties in geopolitics and economics and so on over the next few years is that public opinion will latch on to this scientific evidence that we'll be presented with and will tell the world's societies and leaders and businesses what you're doing is not enough. And that seems to me to be the basis of the optimism that I wanted to start with, which is that this problem is not going away, the evidence is getting stronger and public opinion is going to get more anxious about it. And under those circumstances, it seems to me that we have a very real opportunity to influence the way in which governments uh, think about this, and that opportunity will uh, will not simply open in certain moments and then disappear. I'll talk in the further discussion because you, you want me to stop, about how we could do this because I think there are real strategies that it could, emerge, could emerge out of the current situation which could get us to that point. But in that sense, I think the world could be much more fluid than, present, than is presented here so far.
0: Well, thank you very much. I mean, you won't get, I, find, I think anywhere, a better discussion of these issues than we've had this evening. I'm, I'm, it's. Uh, both uh, deeply I mean, informative and impressive, but clearly raises such fundamental questions that sometimes that they can clearly be daunting for all of us. And But there are a range of political and policy responses on the panel, which suggests you know, the diversity of possible ways forward. Uh, since uh, we have two teams here, as it were, the author team and the respondent <laughs> team, I, would, I think it's just the, probably sensible to ask the author team, as it were, to respond briefly to some of the big points that have been made. And then we'll open the floor to discussion. I'd like
5: to respond briefly to what Michael said. Yes,
0: do you want to? Why don't we just let the author team quickly and then let you come in then? Go on, author team, quickly,
2: brief. (laughs) We'll be brief. I just wanted to address um, the view of international treaties and what they're for. And I think that. I actually find myself much in agreement with, with um, Michael's view that international treaties are really about codifying commitments that countries make. But how do countries develop the preferences? How do they know the, what the, the commitments that they want to make? What is that policy? How is that policy formulated? And it's both an interplay between domestic forces and international ones. Sometimes one is stronger than the other. The point of an international negotiation is to try to make those international pressures, that level of the, of the debate, um, to engage in some sort of quid pro quo, or some kind of deal-making. So, in the Kyoto negotiations, everyone sat down and said, well, I'm willing to do this if they're willing to do that, and that's where we are today. And so I very much agree that treaties codify the commitments that countries make based on their own domestic preferences and the interplay of those domestically-generated preferences in the international debate. However, if we look at the Copenhagen Accord, the commitments, the nationally appropriate mitigation actions um, and the commitments that are made and codified in the Copenhagen Treaty still aren't enough to get us there. They're only 60%, I think, is the number of what would be needed to get to a two-degree scenario. And so we find this sort of um, soft commitment that we saw at Copenhagen, which was really just kind of the same thing that was made at Kyoto. Kyoto was technically legally binding, but didn't have any actual enforcement provisions, so it was... Um, technically legal but effectively soft um, who'd be quite similar and so I think the the point we're trying to make is that nation-states can't be uh, this problem is too important we'll to be left to only international negotiators There's a much broader coalition that is able to set the conditions for more ambitious actions and that's a necessary condition in our view for a future world maybe past 2020 where a or a, a treaty international process is, is able to lock in domestic preferences that have changed and evolved in this way. We need to get to them to that point first before treaty technology is going to be a good solution in our view. Thank, thank you. Tony,
0: do you want to? Well, comment?
5: I'd just like to say bri- briefly, you know, whenever you give a speech on climate change, someone always asks you, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And I say I'm neither because I think the important thing is to realize the seriousness of the risks and not underplay them. We just don't know what outcomes will be 20 or 30 years down the line. So I tend to sort of refuse that distinction, but I think the other thing that Michael said is very important. There's like a surreal world of international agreements and then there's a real world of accumulating greenhouse gas emissions which will do our future enormous damage. And the key issue for us is to try to bring those two things together. But at the moment, they're a long way apart, I'm afraid. Michael,
0: quickly, and then
6: Uh, the audience. Um, uh, There isn't just a world of emissions and agreements. There's a world of investment. Um, For the last three (coughs) years, investment in renewable energy has been greater than investment in fossil fuel energy. This is a change. This is a very significant change. Now, investment in fossil fuel energy is still hugely, uh, is, is far too much, but there has been a shift. It's not that nothing is happening. We mustn't think that the only thing that occurs in, 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 uh, to affect this issue are the treaties and international agreements. That's not it. There, is, uh, there are real investments going on This massive investment in China in hydro, in wind and in, uh, now even some in solar um, huge changes in European energy policy over the last few years there are, this investment is going in it's in, the, it's in the trillions of dollars so that's the cause of, of optimism it isn't that we've got some kinds of agreements at all let me just say one other thing about soft agreements Copenhagen wasn't soft agreements the Chinese commitment is law it's Chinese law much stronger than anything that was agreed in an international treaty much stronger. The Brazilian targets are Brazilian law, much stronger than anything that was agreed at Kyoto. The European targets are European law, British law. So don't think that things that occur outside a binding treaty are in some way soft. On the contrary, what you need to be looking at is, is the national commitments. And these are now hard.
2: Okay, not I think enough. there are lots of people They're eager
6: not.
0: to come <laughs> back. But, uh, but maybe you could we we'll combine questions with with uh, uh, responses here between the two groups, as it were, and within the groups. Now it, we've got half an hour, which is quite a lot of time, and I'm going re- to get f- five or six questions out, which then we can filter and uh, you can respond to. But can you keep your questions short? I mean, otherwise we've had enough statements, so we need dialogue. So at random, yes, you. Are We've got mics too. Come
7: Thank in. you. Uh, my question relates to climate ch- science. I was wondering uh, whether you envisage some sort of um, decreasingly global framing of glo- climate science. Should our institutions reform? Should they be less, less technocratic to, to be compatible with, with a UN plus approach, more local perhaps?
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yes, gentleman with a tie the back.
8: Yeah, my name is Benny Pizer. Um, Two short questions. The first is we heard a lot about the future. What about the reality today that countries like Germany, Japan, and even the the UK are getting cold feet, are changing their policies, are making conditions on their targets? I mean, you may have heard that the UK government now is basically – conditioning their targets on EU agreements in the future and the EU targets are conditional on international agreements. So the question here is, isn't the reality that governments do not want to lead anymore? They don't want to take that kind of approach that you're advocating the avant-garde. And the second question, where, where are the $100 billion a year for the developing world that was agreed apparently, uh, in your scenario, and what do you think the developing world is going to say if the West now takes your approach?
0: Okay. Give me a lady in the middle here. Sorry, we're going to try and get as many of you as possible, but do it in two or three rounds. If you keep your questions short, I'll get to lots of you.
2: Thank you so much. My name is Maria Carvalho and I'm with the Grantham Institute. Um, My question actually, you've talked about uh, having action for climate change and how that's created a stymie amongst governments. You've also talked about, or uh, Professor Giddens has talked about energy security being quite limited in creating that action. What I've noticed in the past two years is, is that now, with China's leadership in renewable energy technology, especially with wind and solar, U.S. government is talking about technological leadership and catch up to China in this case. To what extent? My question is: To, to what extent do you find that uh, an encouraging f- fact—the domestic level of a technological leadership race uh, leading to government and, and business alignment in terms of technology change?
0: Let's take a couple more. Yes, Gentleman at the end there.
7: I wish the panel good luck in what you're trying to do but I don't think you're going to have much success at all and the reason why is pretty obvious. There's an elephant in the room that's that's not been talked about at all, that most people see good ecology, a life of good ecology as a pain, it's austere. There's no good reason to think that way but that's the way most people think. And and what you need in order to contact, in in order to counteract that, that, that false perception, is a special government agency, one in each country, to show people that a life of good ecology is not austere, that for example, vegetarian food is not austere, that cycling to work instead of driving a car is not austere, it's a pleasure and when when you have government agencies explicitly right. set up to No it's to a clear question.
0: You've made a very clear question. Thank you very much. And one more, the fifth question, yes. Maybe Thank
2: there. you for a very engaging discussion. Um, Michael mentioned that there's difficulty with the Pledge and Review system in trying to create a unified system of measuring the mitigation efforts being made. I was wondering from all the panelists, especially from the authors, about what kinds of systems they plan on engaging with to try to measure the efforts being made and try to unify them so that they are equally um, effective.
0: Okay, let me just throw in one other question. Now, it's very interesting that none of you mentioned the distinction between democratic and authoritarian regimes. This used to be thought to be really fundamental in determining responsive to environmental questions, with democracies thought to be and uh, argued to be at some length and empirically shown to be more responsive than more authoritarian regimes. But none of you none of you mention this distinction anymore. And are we therefore to conclude that this distinction in politics? where these issues are concerned is no longer of fundamental significance, which has implications in itself. Now, six or so questions, seven, if I count the one over there, to, uh, the gentleman over there asked two, six people on the panel, this is almost impossible. So I'm going to run down you very quickly, I want you to pick up the one or two issues that concern you that are most important, so everybody has a chance to respond, so we can go back to the audience. It's impossible to be none of you can be comprehensive with all these issues. So pick up what's really important.
1: Sure. Uh, so one, one, one sort of main point that I think um, informed a lot of our discussion, Tom alluded to it uh, in, in his presentation, but basically what we're trying to think about is how, well, start off with a limitation, which is that it seems fundamentally clear to us that an international treaty regime, an international institutional regime uh, can't lead uh, domestic preferences. Um, within each uh, member state to the UN uh, framework convention. And what we're really trying to do is focus uh, our discourse, our recommendations, uh, and indeed action on climate governance uh, to the sorts of places where we believe, as as Tom spoke about, uh, these kinds of preferences are really shaped, uh, made, aggregated, and translated upwards. So in a way, this is very much about trying to, um, we believe, focus on where uh, this reorientation um, really happens, which I think addresses some of the several of the uh, the questions. So we really are trying to make this uh, one way to think about might might, might be a maximally coordinated bottom up uh, approach. That's really the kind of framing I think. Um, quick quick point on the, the distinction between authoritarian and democratic regimes. It's an interesting point. I think uh, mainly our um, approach to that was framed by the geopolitical realities of the time. If this Debate were being had sort of 20 years ago, we could probably think mainly about um, it. Would be maybe a useful kind of dichotomy to think about authoritarian and democratic. Even if we wanted to sort of inject that into the discussion, I think we have to uh, be very cognizant and realistic about the, uh, uh, the the systems in in China and other other countries that are extremely um, that are essential to to the
0: climate game. Tom.
2: I just want to pick up briefly on the point about technology, which I think is a key one, and it relates to the earlier discussion we had about the you know the po- possibility of using technology as a silver bullet. We can technologically innovate our way out of these problems. And if you look at the history of the development of re- renewable energy, there has never been a silver bullet the the reason why wind power is successful in china today why solar power is successful in china today is because we have 30 th- uh, 30 years of costly regulatory policies in places like california and denmark and germany and other countries that made those uh, that led the, that developed the technology that way. So the success of China in renewable energy is because in the late 1970s some leading jurisdictions, a coalition of the ambitious, if you would, made really costly choices for themselves. So I think that's a really important point to, to keep in mind.
3: Yeah, maybe just to add on this uh, question about the technological leadership race. Yes, I think that is helpful. And uh, you mentioned China and the US, but also in Germany, that's that's the talk of the moment. It's all about green economy, green jobs. So that's the narrative, that uh, that's the pitch that most parties uh, play right now.
4: Let me start on your point on democracy. I think that's a very interesting one, because there's good research that shows that democracies were the first to initiate environmental policies. They were the first to push environmental policies to the global level. They, on average, tend to participate in more international regimes, they sign up to more, they ratify more. They tend to be more transparent about their own commitments and and what they do about it. So, on average, there is a fairly good record that suggests that the more democracy there is around the world, the better the quality of environmental management at the global level gets. That's the good part of the story. But I think climate change has shown the limit of this argument because what we're dealing with here is not so much about it's not about just creating targets and treaties and, and commitments and institutions. It's about making commitments in the long run. It's about committing future generations to either continue the process of cutting down emissions or bear the costs of our efforts today that we might have to pay for through higher debt. And on that front, it seems to me democracies have found themselves to be equally uh, ill-equipped to make those long commitments. Governments are quite happy to sign on to certain targets that will apply uh, three parliaments after they leave power, but to make the investment right now, which will divert resources from other areas, is very difficult, and on that front, we don't see, from what I can tell, a fundamental difference between democracies and autocracies. Just just one other point about uh, international negotiations. The one thing we forget is that In international negotiations on environmental issues, although scientists play a big role in raising issues, NGOs play a big role in creating awareness and pushing states to do something, there is still quite a bit of room for power in the creation of multilateral environmental treaties. And if you look at the long history of treaty negotiations, it was often powerful states that put a choice to the world, which is either you're going to sign up to these environmental standards or we're going to impose them on you anyway because we're the biggest economy around. So when the Ozone Treaty was signed in 1985 and 87, it was the United States that produced the vast quantity of ozone-depleting substances and was willing to act on it. And when the Biosafety Treaty was signed in 2000, it was the European Union that argued as the biggest uh, global market for agricultural goods, we are willing to put our reputation on, on the block, we'll do it anyway. And so, what's missing in climate change is that sort of slightly unequal power balance uh, where one block of countries, one single power uh, could do it. Of course, we know the US and China together could do it, but um, that's topic for another discussion. Tony.
5: Uh, I'd like to briefly discuss the question from down there, because I think we're facing like 20 or 30 year process of transformation of our economy and society. Um, Globally, because I think we've reached something like the limits of the existing industrial order. I don't think that it's possible for either China or India simply to recapitulate the development path followed by the West. And beyond a certain point, I don't think it's possible, just too destructive. So we do have to think of alternative ways of living. And I think rather than just talking about ecology, you know, I think. There are some very obvious and positive ones around. If you think of the traffic jam that went from Beijing to Tibet and people were stuck in it for four days, is that a viable future for transport in the city? No, I think you think about these things quite radically. If anyone's interested in transportation, um, there's this very interesting report by MIT on the future of the automobile, which uh, argues that, we'll have a system like um, they call a mobile internet in the future which, which lot, lot, a lot of which will work through high technology I mean don't know if people know but 40 million people have been killed in vehicle accidents since uh, motor vehicles were invented and we do have the technology to prevent most of those accidents if you integrate that with what many people are thinking about how can we reconstruct cities what kind of model of city life is best we don't want to live in a, in a world just dominated by the car, I don't think. So, you know, I feel we need a kind of, I call this utopian realism. We need, a, we need an element of utopianism because we've got to think beyond the way in which we live now. We just have to if we're going to contain these problems. But it has to have a realistic tinge. It has to be have a realistic foundation. And I think if you think of particular areas like, you know, how would you have mobility in a society which is better organized, more effective, and also reduces carbon emissions than one we have at the moment, if you think in those concrete ways, we can develop a fairly positive model of what a low-carbon economy and society might conceivably look like, because we do have to achieve it. Um,
6: let me try and answer Benny Pais's questions. Um, uh, he, he said that the reality is that the German-UK governments getting cold feet. Uh, making conditional commitments that governments don't want to lead. Um, I don't think that's completely true. Um, That is, I think, uh, the the fact that the British government has come out with a uh, a new target for 2022 to 2027 to cut emissions by 50% on 1990 levels, unilateral at the moment, uh, though they would no doubt like it to be uh, part of a European commitment, is rather remarkable. Um, Germany has not reacted to, uh, to Fukushima... Um, by saying, we're going to build more coal. It said, we're going to build more renewables. Um, and uh, the Japanese have not reacted to Fukushima by saying, OK, we can't do nuclear, we'll do more coal. They, they, are, they, are going to, uh, they have said that they will do more renewables, that the climate targets are, non, uh, are not negotiable. Um, on the other hand, there's hundreds and hundreds of counter examples of, of, of pressures going in the other direction. None of this is simple. These are all huge battles about the direction of our economy in which there are winners and losers and almost always the losers are powerful vested interests um, and the winners are up-and-coming companies, companies operating in new areas, smaller companies Um, or in relatively weaker sectors. So this is always a battle, and you can always find examples of politicians and leaders and businesses who are on the right side of this argument, from a client point of view, and those who are on the wrong side. And it is in many ways extraordinary that there's been any progress at all, given how strong the vested interests are in in politics um, uh, and in the economy. And the point is to understand those battles better and from the point of view of somebody like me who wants to act on this to see where you can strengthen the the positive forces. But you can never say, and I would never dream of doing so, that everything is rosy, that we're all going in the right direction. Brazil, I was in Brazil last week, Brazil is uh, in many ways a world climate leader. Um, it's true that over the last few years, deforestation has gone down, except that over the last 10 months, it's gone up by 27% again. Yeah, and yesterday, the, um, uh, the Bra- Brazil has changed its forest code, um, uh, which is going to have a, a negative impact on de- uh, deforestation. Um, so there's negative and positive. Let me just answer you with reference yeah. to Brazil, your point about uh, <coughs> democracy and authoritarian regimes, there's absolutely no correlation, is the answer. China, now acting very seriously on climate change, not enough, but very seriously, likely to achieve its targets. It's done so in the past. Authoritarian regime, without any question, its authoritarianism is helping achieve those things, while not a, not helping in many others, helping achieve those things. Brazil, the presence of Marina Silva, a Green Party candidate in the presidential election, unquestionably pushed the Brazilian government under, under both Lula and Dilma towards uh, higher, higher commitments. Democracy patently working there towards uh, increasing and America, democracy patently working in the opposite direction. Congress, Congressmen and women terrified of the, uh, the rights and of, the, of, of arguments against global warming, unable Democrats reneging on positions they held before. I don't think there's any correlation. Saudi Arabia, authoritarian vested interest again. So I just don't think there's no uh, correlation. On the money, uh, Benny Pazier also asked about the money. The money's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, the 100 billion was for 2020, so you wouldn't have seen it now. The commitments that we made at Copenhagen, I was part of the government, side say so we um, for 30 billion over the next three years won't be quite achieved but there is now money going in and so some of that will be achieved it's going to be very very difficult to raise uh, to raise the extra money uh, and this will be I agree with you completely this will be a problem for the international negotiations if no money is, uh, is flowing but there's still a while yet to try and achieve it.
0: Thank you fantastic let's try and get five more questions out really quickly yes gentleman with the blue jacket over there no up the wrong way wrong direction Sorry, Zabit, this is pretty random, I have to say. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, So, uh, given the uh,
1: potential catastrophes of adaptation strategies um, in developing
4: countries, uh, where do you see um, the nexus between uh, public opinion, social movements, and policy um, in the future? And what sort of tipping point uh, might there be uh, for social movements from developing countries informing mitigation policies and, and industrialized OECD countries If we
0: can keep your questions really sharp and short we'll get more There's the pink shirt's down that end There's two of them, different shades of pink why, both of you, both of you why don't you both do it, but just be brief
9: um, Andrew Purcell, Climate Action. Um, I know you've only looked to 2020, but uh, on the slide behind you,
8: you're making predictions up to the end of this century. Uh, so what role does population growth play in
9: those predictions?
8: Emmanuel LSE ideas. I often hear this notion that it would take a cataclysmic event to get more public notice of climate change. Do you think, as a counterfactual, that efforts to improve public information on these matters would improve if there were an actual disaster, say Bangladesh, a large portion of it being underwater and people forcibly being becoming migrants. Thank you briefly, yes.
7: History suggests that
5: civil society will only push on this issue if there is anger about the failures of governments to tackle the issue properly. How do you think uh, anger can be aroused among the public about uh, tackling climate change rather than defeatism
0: ok let's just get a spread of views quickly and then we'll give a chance to, to wrap up Yes. Uh, yeah.
8: Uh, my question is uh, how do you um, propose to occupy this uh, middle ground especially when the debate is so polarized and I'm thinking of the US I mean you have two competing um, discourses one is very much environmentalism and regulation. And the other one is this very technology-centric approach. So um, usually, the framings the that are suggested to occupy this middle ground are the ones that Professor Giddens said that there are not enough, uh, energy security and uh, investment in renewables. So how do you plan to occupy this, this middle ground? Okay,
0: Lady behind you, right behind. with a hand up right behind you. Uh, my name is Daisy Stratfield from the UK Treasury. I just wondered, given that the panel have some consensus that the UN process is necessary in some form,
2: uh, what reforms to the process as it currently works would be necessary to help a global deal along?
0: And finally, I'm sorry to say. Um, Isn't population
6: growth at the core of this? And shouldn't more focus be put onto that?
0: Okay. um, Interesting. Thank you. Um, A substantial range of issues. Can I ask you to pick out one each? You know, certainly the authors one each, and then as we I'm get down all right, come on, we'll end up with authors. Good idea, good suggestion. Adopted.
6: well um, oh, that's um, well. Let's take population growth as that's been been raised. Um, there's absolutely no question that population growth is a major part of this issue and problem, um, and uh, uh, the additional pressures which more people put on the planet and on the resources of the planet make the problem harder, no question. The question is what follows from that. Um, and uh, w- what follows by people who raise population, and I don't know whether this is true of people in this room, I suspect not often, is uh, some vision of uh, limiting population by, uh, uh, by methods as yet unknown. That is, there is quite a lot of effort already going into limiting population by, uh, uh, by many governments um, and by many aid agencies and so on, mainly aimed at uh, getting con- giving women more control over their uh, reproductive lives through con- contraception and raising women's uh, education and living standards, uh, and that is the best way of, uh, uh, that we know uh, of doing it. Um, and it has, those methods have slowed population growth, but not enough. So whenever anybody raises population, uh, my answer is yes, but then what are the methods that we are not currently using Um, to limit it further and that's the difficult question and those uh, governments and aid agencies which which uh, refuse uh, to fund contraception and so on, uh, uh, religions which do that, um, are playing a terrible role in, in this, and I think we should be uh, very clear about this. But I'm not clear that there are better solutions than ones we already have to dealing with this problem. This will give me the opportunity to say one further thing, which is that I think the real issue that's going to arise where population is, is, is critical is on food, because land use, um, uh, in the end, we know, we, we know how to use energy more efficiently and to use it in lower carbon way. Land is finite and land is now under tremendous pressure from population growth, from food growth, from, from biofuels and uh, from the need to preserve biodiversity in forests. And it isn't clear that the efficiencies we can definitely make in land use will be sufficient to cope with the population we've got. And so although climate is, our, is the huge problem for the future, um, issues of food security and, and, uh, and so on seem to me to be, and, and land seem to me to be even more urgent and um, we will need to... To focus on those as much as on climate in my view thank
5: you well we've got this very good report um, as Michael knows produced by the British government foresight report on food security which alerts us to these issues I'd like to comment just briefly on the question about uh, public policy, uh, public opinion social movements in developing countries because it's very important um, the, the pattern of uh, belief about um, the risks of climate change is different in many developing countries from the developed ones. That is, more people in the developed world are fearful, convinced of those risks than on average in the industrial countries, <coughs> presumably because they feel more menaced directly by them. Now, I think in the case of you know mobilisation in those countries, one shouldn't take the, as it were, traditional view that they have to wait around until the industrial world comes along to help and this is not the case at all. You have really interesting initiatives going on in Bangladesh and Rwanda, for example, and many other um, so-called developing countries. In Bangladesh, for instance, they're pioneering, I think, really intriguing uh, ways of trying to ensure poorer people against the uh, uh, catastrophic effects of, of climate change in a country already prone to flooding, uh, will it, if you remember what happened in, in Hurricane Katrina, um, poor people had no insurance, and there was a clear class division in terms of the consequences of Hurricane Karina, Katrina. In Bangladesh, together with um, some insurance companies, they're pioneering ways of trying to set up insurance mechanisms to help small farmers and uh, uh, individuals threatened by They're doing so very interestingly by combining very high technology um, because we have much better ways of tracking violent weather patterns than we had with traditional kinship organisations, traditional uh, kinship groups. And it's one example of many such things going on, I think, in the developing developing world, which I think are extremely interesting. And already, you know, in Bangladesh, they pioneered the, the, the idea of floating gardens so you can keep on... Um, producing goods even uh, in times of flooding, and that's been re-imported back into the Netherlands. So it, I think the developing world actually um, can be a source of major initiatives that uh, that could have very general significance, and one shouldn't be patronizing, I think, about this. It's very important that there is a lot of activism in many developing countries, and quite rightly so.
4: I was quite intrigued by the question about anger and um, how to arouse it. Um, should be fairly easy uh, among academics. Just mention the Stalinist research assessment framework, and, and there's a lot of anger around. But we've been tamed, of course, because we are sort of kept apart from the rest of the world in these <laughs> institutions. So, so we're not really good at arousing anger any longer. I think we've we've learned to live with its subdued forms. I'm actually not sure whether anger is what we need. I mean, I, I think it's a hugely important motivating force for humans to do something. You know. um, some, some of us wouldn't get out of bed if we weren't angry about certain things. But that doesn't really sustain us during the day, I fear. Um, and on climate change in particular, I think it's not going to help us because the people who will be angry about the failures of current climate policy will be those that will suffer the kind of consequences that Tony and others have talked about in the future. Those faced with uh, rising sea levels in Bangladesh and in small island states. Those that will see their crops die in, in sub-Saharan Africa, more so than they already are. But that will happen at points in the future when it may be already too late to do something quickly, and when that anger can no longer translate into meaningful action here and now. Likewise, I think climate change is going to be a really long haul in political terms, and rather than stimulate anger, we need to uh, produce determined political will uh, among ordinary people to change things on the ground and within political institutions, including the UK's Treasury, I I should like to include that here, uh, to really do something serious about this. I think there is a lot to be said for uh, the traditional Weberian concept of politics, as the, the, the what was it, the boring of hard uh, pieces of wood? I, can't, I, I can remember the German original word, but I can't use it in English. It's a long process, and I think anger will have to be channeled and translated. That would be my answer. Thank
3: you. A quick comment on how to conquer the middle ground. I would also be skeptic about arousing anger. Instead, I would say a credible demonstration that a low-carbon life is both feasible and enjoyable. That would be much, much more productive.
2: A number of the questions highlight um, are sort of asking for some way to break the political constraints that we've talked about today. Anger, social movements, cataclysmic events, these might be enough, we say in the scenario reports, to break the political constraints that we we think we face, to get governments motivated to not make 60% of the commitment needed, but 100% of the commitments needed, to make the United States Senate do something, to make the Chinese government take its ambitious policies to the next level. I don't think, however, and we don't think, and the uh, perspective we try to bring forward in the report, is that a global governance strategy based on these wild cards is probably not the most feasible. This is the world we're in now. We, If we rely on these, on the, fat, on a, God forbid, a horrible disaster in Bangladesh as a necessary, you know, n- we need that in order to have effective global governance of climate change, that's not a very smart world to be in, it seems. So I think the... Um, a more realistic strategy is one that takes these political constraints as given hopes they won't constrain us as much as we think they will, but we need to be very um, aware of them. There's been horrible events. There's a, a drought in China now, the worst drought in 50 years. Is it part of climate change? Probably there's some factors that are involved. It's impossible to say for real and so it's not going to change the fundamental position of the Chinese government. Hurricane Katrina in the United States didn't change the fundamental position of the American public. So I think we can't count on that, and we need to prepare for a world that won't. Uh, we need to prepare a governance that won't count on that for um, for dealing with this problem because of the reasons that Professor Giddens outlined so well.
1: Yeah, and um, to pick up on that, the, a lot of the questions uh, very um, appropriately highlighted a lot of the factors that we considered um, in in our analysis. Uh, things like social movements and disasters. Um, the one of the the problems. Um, that that you immediately run up against in the climate governance game and why we think that it really matters um, that we uh, change the way we think uh, and the way that we organize that governance is that it doesn't doesn't only matter that there are social movements or natural disasters. It also matters where they happen and when they happen. Uh, And that's sort of an artifact of the nation-state system that we have to deal with these problems, which is not ideal, but it's what we have. Um, The disasters uh, example is a particularly interesting one. I want to go into it for a second because I think it is illustrative. Uh, Last year, in 2010, uh, we had a a massive heat wave, uh, forest fires in Russia, uh, dramatic flooding in Pakistan, both of which, uh, though you'll uh, be hard-pressed to find a climate scientist who will directly attribute those events to climate change, are broadly consistent with what you'd expect. Um, from models of climate forcings. Uh, That didn't uh, obviously have too much of an impact uh, on global governance, but one is tempted to wonder whether it might have had those events uh, happened, uh, again, relatively simultaneously in the United States, China, India, uh, European countries. Who knows? Um, But the, the fact is, I think, that under this system it does matter not just Uh, these factors in and of themselves, but also where and when they happen. And a lot of what we're trying to think about is how we remove some of the worst absurdities of that system and perverse incentives of that system. So uh, that that just gets me to to say really quickly about the the question about the United Nations is very important because we see uh, one key way to change that uh, is for the United Nations to think not just about this nation state consensus building approach. Uh, They are the United Nations. That is what they have historically done. But from the perspective of climate change, it's not enough. And we need to think uh, much more broadly, much more innovatively uh, about how we um, integrate different actors and coordinate their actions. Uh, I'd like to end by thanking uh, the panelists uh, and also you, the audience, we came here uh, thinking that uh, we had, uh, maybe we're asking some of the right questions. Uh, we certainly don't pretend to have uh, all, the, uh, all the right answers and, and this is a very valuable part um, of thinking about that. But before, we end, before we end, yeah. I,
0: I think there might be someone in the audience who would be really angry if they didn't have a chance to ask a question because sure. I missed them out by accident. True. So be brief and I'll appoint one person on the panel to answer your question.
9: Can I choose the person? Yes. <laughs> yes, even better, even better. All right. <laughs> um, then I would ask uh, Professor Giddens to, to ask that question. Yeah. Um, there, is a, there is a point where all the, well, uh, during all of your discussion, you all showed your disagreements on several points. But there is, in, uh, in my view, one point where all of you converge. And this is that you concentrated the debate on mitigation, what should be done to uh, reduce emissions. And uh, amongst all your answers, you talked about Fukushima, you talked of uh, uh, the insurance in Bangladesh as well. And uh, this can all can be encapsulated in risk. In this slide behind you, you have different scenarios of temperature. What you don't show is that impacts come mainly from rainfall, the water cycle. And if you imagine if you from? The, from rainfall, water, modifications of the water cycle. And you mentioned Princeton, NOAA. So you would assume that the best climate models are the ones where more brains worked. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, NOAA, and Princeton, and uh, the Hadley Center model totally diverge. People thought that the good models would converge in their impacts. But uh, for the Asian monsoon, they show that it diverges. Therefore, the question, <laughs> <is> <laughs> the, quick. Que- the question is wouldn't you think that uh, a more balanced approach in, uh, between mitigation and actually adaptation such as doing a, a global insurance pool would be more appropriate rather than discarding like you all did a- adaptation and risk?
0: Thank you. So you're going to help, help someone stop being angry tonight by answering this question? Uh,
5: uh, yeah, well, you know the assessment of the risk posed by climate change comes from many sources, not just from modeling. So it's a mistake to concentrate too much on that. Um, all modeling efforts are, well, now they're vastly more sophisticated than they were, I think, actually, vastly more, and they've been tracked um, against um, predictions of, of even weather patterns, which they've been quite successful at doing. If you're raising the question of um, water vapor, I mean, that's been exhaustively discussed and analyzed, you can never be completely sure in any risk scenario. You're never going to have 100% certainty of risks in relation to the future. So this is characteristic of, of climate change analysis. But um, we have so much robust evidence on what the risks are that you know, we know a enormous amount about them. And you, of course, you always have to carry on looking at whatever incoming observations are made. But I don't think any climate scientist would depend solely on climate modeling anyway
0: if I understood your question. Okay, let me just um, uh, end with a number of thank yous before I actually thank the panel. The first thing I want to do is thank uh, Charlie Rogers over there and Anna Wishart for organising this event, but I particularly want to thank... Charlie Rogers. He has organised all the Milliband events this year. We've had um, about 12 or 14 events. We've had, you know, over all these uh, events, we've had um, several thousand people come to them. At least three or four thousand people, I would imagine. If you added up all the audiences, it's been a really superb set of activities. So I'd like to thank you for everything you've done to make those work. And then finally, the panel, it, uh, wonder- First of all, we wish you all success with the report. It's hugely helpful. I think some issues have been raised, which might be in the second, uh, second version when you do the second edition. And I'd like to thank you know, the respondents who've been so precise, sharp, and brilliant on the issues uh, put before them. So thank you all very much.